Welcome to Christ Church Anglican. We hope that you were blessed by today's sermon. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. So we all survived yesterday. It was an awesome experience. I got a little waterlogged in the dunk tank, so that was fun. Uh, I had some coffee this morning and hung out with the teenagers, and I'm ready to go. So hopefully the sermon... uh, I have a little energy this morning for y'all. Um, yeah! So, uh, we're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 3 this morning, uh, specifically at verses 1 through 6. So if you have your Bibles, please turn there. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. And so Hebrews is an awesome book. If, you have a, if you've never read through Hebrews, it's, it's actually written as a sermon. And so you can read it from chapter 1 all the way through to the end. It'll probably take you a little while, but it's a, pretty fant- it's a fantastic book. There's just so much rich theology in it. And when I was in uh, seminary, we were going through our New Testament class, which was a lot of fun, and really enjoyed New Testament. And we would go through all the books. We'd talk about the author of the book, the purpose of the book, the themes of the book, the literary genre of the book, so all that stuff, right? But one of the things uh, we got to was when we get to the author, uh, the professor would ask, you know, who's the author of this book? And sometimes, most of the time you could say Paul, right? Or, or something like that. But we got to Hebrews, and then the contest began. Who wrote Hebrews? Was it Paul or Apollos or Barnabas? Or, uh, nobody could really, nobody really knows. A lot of people think it was Paul in the early church, but, but there's been debate over the centuries of who actually wrote Hebrews. But the most important thing that we know is that this is breathed out by the living God. That every book, every book in this Bible is, is a letter or it is a historical book telling the history of God's people. It is all breathed out, inspired by God. And so we're going to be looking at chapter 3, 1 through 6 this morning to see what God has for us as we consider Jesus, uh, the author and the perfecter of our faith, also our apostle or a high priest. So as we go through, there's four main things I'll be focusing on. I'll be talking about Jesus as our apostle and high priest, Jesus as the builder of the house, Moses uh, was faithful as a servant of God, and then last, uh, Jesus is faithful as a son and our confidence and our hope. So starting with verse 1, the writer of Hebrews writes, Therefore, holy brothers, you who are in you who share in the heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. So therefore, makes us go back to the earlier chapters to see what this is here for. So whenever you see therefore, think, what is this here for? All right, so you're going to look back at chapter 1 and 2 to see what this is here for. And um, and even all before that, but chapter 1 especially really gets into the idea that God's spoken many times in many places through many ways, right? But now in the last days, he's spoken through his son. And so if we don't listen to Jesus, we're out of hope. Jesus is our last hope. The prophets have already come. All of the, all of the Old Testament prophets came and they spoke about God and, and, his, and his will, uh, what he wanted for his people. Uh, and the Israelites, uh, a lot, I mean, the majority of the time rejected the prophets. But now, in the last days, we have Jesus, who is God himself in flesh. And if we reject him, there is no hope for salvation. Jesus is the apostle and high priest. So when he comes, he comes, and in, in verse 10 it says, uh, so going back to chapter 2, verse 10, 
For it was uh, fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, so Jesus creates everything, uh, we exist for him, and because of him we exist, um, in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So Jesus creates us. He is the, he is the, uh, the creator. He is the sustainer. We exist by him and for him, but he is also the one that suffers to make atonement for our sins, to make us sanctified or holy. And so verse, four sa- or verse 11 of chapter 2 says, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. And this is why we can all say we're one family in Christ. When, when we talk to our brothers or sisters in Christ, they're not just other people. They're not just, you know, outside the family of God. They, they are our brothers and sisters in Christ. Each one of them share in God's image, but they also share in his spirit. We are united through one spirit, one hope, one baptism, one Lord, right? Um, as Ephesians talks about. So that is why uh, he is not ashamed to call them brothers. And so Jesus calls us brothers. And, and that means we share in his sonship. We, we share as heirs by his grace. We can come before the Father as children of the Father because Jesus is the Son, and he calls us brothers. And so, continuing on, uh, so we, we are uh, called to consider or fix our thoughts on Jesus. And that's why here it says, consider Jesus, and that's the title of my sermon this morning, uh, the NIV actually says, fix our thoughts on Jesus, which is very similar to chapter 12. If you've memorized chapter 12, um, verse 2, it talks about, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And so we fix our eyes on Jesus. We fix um, our thoughts on Jesus. And there's a very real example of this in the Gospels when Peter is walking on the water towards Jesus. Jesus is walking on the water and he's standing there and Peter's walking out and Peter has his eyes fixed on Jesus. But what happens when he takes his eyes off Jesus? He plummets down into the waters, into these, these stormy waters, right? And, and we have this, a similar experience in our own lives. What happens when we take our eyes off Jesus, when we take our thoughts off Jesus, when we're no longer fixed on him, we fall into the waters of confusion and of despair, and we are tossed to and fro, as the, as the New Testament authors talk about, being tossed to and fro as waves of the sea. And so we need to keep our eyes on Jesus. This guards against an evil and unbelieving heart that will lead us away so that we fall away from the living God. That's verse 12. And so it's so dangerous to take our eyes off Jesus because all around us we have a world of distractions. There's so many things to distract us from Jesus. And so when we live our lives and we're going about our day, what are we doing each day to be in Jesus, to keep our eyes fixed on him? Are we in his word together, reading his word, studying it in small groups or in Bible studies, individually at home? Um, or, I mean, the first thing it's so easy to do is grab our smartphone and check the news and, and do that kind of stuff, right? And look at Facebook. But what are the first things we do when we wake up in the morning? Do we get in his word? Do we spend time praying to him? Just maybe just a simple prayer in the morning to unite our heart to his heart, to ask him what his will is for us that day. Jesus is the apostle and the gospel. Jesus is the apostle meaning he is the sent one. But not only is he sent to proclaim the gospel, to preach repentance so that people will be turned from their sins and follow him and enter into his kingdom, become his disciple. Not only does he do that, but he is also the gospel himself. 
He does the, he dies for us. He, he is sacrificed for us. He does all the work so that it's finished for us. And then we can enter into that rest, into Jesus. And so he comes to proclaim the gospel, but he also is the gospel. Jesus is the merciful and faithful high priest and the sacrifice for our sins. And the privilege of standing at the altar as priests today, Anglicans, we still call ourselves priests, because we actually share, we participate in this wonderful office of priest to stand as representatives of Jesus at the table. This Lord's Supper that we celebrate, it reminds us of the sacrifice that he made. And so we get to stand at the table to remind the congregation, remind people that Jesus is our great high priest. We have the privilege to do that. And each one of you, as the priesthood of the believers, you get to go out and be the priest to the world. You get to represent Jesus to the world. Jesus is the high priest for us. He's the sacrifice for us. And he passed through the heavens and sits at the right, at the right hand of the Father. So he is enthroned uh, at the throne of grace. So in the gospel of Hebrews, you have not only is Jesus a prophet greater than Moses, but he is also a priest greater than any Old Testament priest. And he's also a king greater than David or any Old Testament kings. And he sits on the throne so that we can enter into rest. We can enter into the throne of grace. We can come before him with confidence. So when we confess Jesus, as it talks about in in verse 1, when we confess him, we're not just confessing a creed or or a a belief in something, um, some belief system. We're actually confessing a person. We confess Jesus, the person. That's why if you look at our creed, like 90% of the creed is about Jesus and what he did for us. The Apostles' Creed, you look at the Apostles' Creed, I mean, most of that, it talks about the Father in the beginning, it talks about the Holy Spirit in the end, but most of the creeds are about Jesus. We confess a person. The people of God have always been a confessing people. Even in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, was the Shema. Uh, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. You know, that Shema, uh, the Old Testament people of God confessed God. And in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 4, Jesus talk, or Paul talks about Jesus and the gospel of what Jesus did for us. Ephesians is another creedal kind of confession. Philippians 2, another creedal kind of confession. You have confessions kind of scattered throughout the New Testament of these, these early confessional statements, and this is a trustworthy saying kind of things, right? And this confessing is so important. I think we've kind of lost this as a church. A lot of churches say, no confession but the Bible, right? But really, as Christians, we've always been a creedal people. We've always had the Nicene Creed. We've always had the Apostles' Creed. And it's important, especially in, a, uh, in the early church, because they would ask you for your confession. Who do you confess? And, and in the empire, you would confess the king, right? We have no king but Caesar was the confession of the empire. If you could not confess the king, if you could not confess Caesar as king, you had no place in the empire. You were a traitor. And so that's why when Jesus is about to get crucified, they say, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And, and Pilate asks, isn't this your king? You want to crucify your king? And they say, we have no king but Caesar. And this morning I want to ask you, who is your king? Who is the king of your heart? Are there, are there things that are taking the place of God in your heart, on the throne of your heart? And I think, like I said earlier, I think it's so easy for us to get sucked into all kinds of things in the world. It can be all kinds of sins and all kinds of traps for our hearts. Is Jesus enthroned on your heart? 
And so when we are asked, and I think this is important now, especially as we enter into a more post-Christian culture, people are going to look at us as a strange people, a people who go to the church, a people who believe a man died on a cross and rose again, a, a people that believe that their king sits enthroned in heaven. I mean, that's a strange thing to an unbelieving world. But we need to stand firm on this confession that Jesus is king. Verse 2 through 4. Who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus, had, uh, for Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. Moses is the greatest of the prophets, and he's faithful in all God's house, but he's still only a member of God's house. Jesus is the builder of God's house, and that's why, as hard as we try, we need to be a people on our knees in prayer. No matter how hard we try to evangelize and grow this church and bring people into the congregation and and be the builders of this house, uh, we cannot build this house unless Jesus is the builder. And so Jesus builds this house. I'm reminded, I was listening to something the other day where uh, it was somebody that visited uh, the Middle East and he'd been in Nazareth and it was pretty cool to be in Nazareth, right? You can look around at all these walls and and houses and buildings that that were built. And when it says that Jesus was a carpenter and Joseph was a carpenter, Jesus would have learned that trade from Joseph, his, his father. It's cool to think about if you go to Nazareth today, there's walls that are still there from the first century. And it's kind of cool to think about, did Jesus build that wall with his dad? And it's just a cool thing to think about. And when we say Jesus is the builder of the house, we have to also remember that carpenters back then were also masons. They were expert house builders. They built walls. And so you can imagine Jesus with a chisel just chiseling away, making these perfect stones to build these walls and these houses. And how true is it for us with Jesus being our builder of our house that he chisels away at our hearts to make us fit perfectly into his house? And this is also why each one of us is is handcrafted by Jesus. This is why we can't say that somebody doesn't belong in the church. If God has called them, if God has brought them into our congregation, each one of us plays an essential role in God's house. And what happens if you take a stone out of a wall. You take enough stones out of a wall, what happens to that wall? It crumbles, right? And so we need to remember that each of us is handcrafted by Jesus, chipping away at those things in our lives that are not of him so that we can fit perfectly into his house. And sometimes that chiseling can be very painful. When we look at the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus in our gospel reading today, He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, have you kept all these commandments? And he says, I have. And he says, well, you have one last thing to do. Go and sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and follow me. But but the rich among ruler is not willing to do that for Jesus. And I think in our own lives today, we need to be willing to whatever God calls us to do, whatever has our hearts, we need to be willing to let Jesus chip that away. Because This rich young ruler, that was his thing, right? His money, his wealth, his possessions. He couldn't give those things up in order to follow Jesus. And because of that, he couldn't couldn't be his disciple. 
And so we need to be reminded that those things in our lives that Jesus is wanting to chip away, we need to let him chip away those things. Moses was faithful as a servant, verse 5. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. And so he's, a, he's faithful in all God's house as a servant. And this word servant, this is the only place in the New Testament that this word in Greek is used. I mean, there's other places where servant is translated, right? But servants usually, um, diakonos means servant in Greek. But here we actually have an interesting word. It's theropon, theropon, which means uh, like a menial servant. So not only was Moses like the, the, uh, a servant, but he was, the, you see it in the, in the Old Testament, it says he was uh, the most humble man in the world. Like that's amazing to think about. Moses being this great man of God was this menial servant in order to exalt Jesus. So the first prophet we really have leading the Exodus, right? Before Joshua, we see that that faithful servant is a menial servant. And the greatest men in the Old Testament point to Jesus. And we see that with John the Baptist. He was the greatest of the prophets, um, that Jesus says. But even with John the Baptist being this great prophet, he pointed to Jesus. He, he was not even worthy to stoop down and un- untie his sandals, right? In Deuteronomy 18:15, Moses says, um, one, uh, a prophet will come after me, listen to him, which uh, that is pointing to Jesus. And then later Jesus says in John 5, 46, that Moses wrote about him. So even in the very beginning of the Exodus and God's people, they're pointing to Jesus, these prophets. Who does your life point to? When you're doing your business, when you're, when you're uh, taking care of your employees, when you're taking care of your, your family, your friends, are people looking to you? Are you trying to make yourself great? Are you trying to make a name for yourself? Or are you making Jesus great? Does what you do each day, your, your, your time, your money, your possessions, your, everything you have, does it point just to yourself or your business or your organization or your, whatever group you're part of? Or does it point to Jesus? And I think these men, uh, even in all of their greatness, they never used that greatness for themselves. They always pointed people to Jesus. Verse 6. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Our membership in God's house is dependent upon our confidence and our boasting in our hope. It is in faith we believe in Jesus and we place all of our heart, all of our hope, all of our love in God. And that is our source. And, and our membership in the house of God to be the living stones that First Peter chapter 2 talks about, to be these living stones, that all depends on whether or not we truly belong to Jesus. Does he have our heart? The author of Hebrews reminds us that we have a heavenly calling just as the Jewish people did. They were, they were called to a promised land, a physical land, but we're promised to an eternal kingdom. And so we need to strive to enter into that rest, as the author of Hebrews later says. To strive to enter into that rest means we give Jesus everything we have. We give him our heart. We give him our possessions. We give him everything. 
And the danger that is set before us is that Jesus, as, he, as it says later, uh, often this, this verse is quoted in reference to the Bible. But let me read this for you. Let us therefore strive to enter into that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Talking about the Old Testament. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than two, any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of the joints of the marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So we often read verse 12 talking about the Bible, right? We often talk about the Bible being this, this sword that divides the heart. But more contextually, this is talking about Jesus. Jesus will discern our hearts. Jesus will see who we truly loved. Did we truly love him in this life? Did we truly love others as ourselves? Or did we exalt ourselves? And, and so as we try to enter into this rest that he's promised for us, we need to guard our hearts we need to not follow our hearts, as so many in the world are saying today. Just follow your heart. The heart is wicked. It's beyond what anybody, anybody can understand. So we need to guard our heart as the wellspring of life, because only the pure in heart can see God. So let us guard our hearts, and let us enter into that rest. And I'm not trying to preach legalism this morning, but we also need to remember in the New Covenant Jesus has given us his spirit to transform us, to make us new creations so that we can stand as priests coming confidently before the throne of heaven and grace. And so this is not the Old Testament. We don't have to stand at the foot of the mountain fearing Mount Sinai, fearing the fire on the mountain. We can stand confidently in the throne of grace. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for this congregation. I thank you for this church, Lord. We showed yesterday how much we love you and how much we love our community. And Lord, I pray that uh, as we go out from this place today, we'd enter into this mission field to remind people over and over again with our thoughts and our, our actions and our attitudes that we truly do love you and are committed to you, and that we want all people to come to the knowledge and love of you for the salvation of their, their souls and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for tuning in. For more information, feel free to visit us online at ccanglican.com. We hope you will join us again soon.